So let's pray and then we'll try to briefly review just to remember where we've been last time and then we'll dive in tonight to tonight's lesson. Father, uh, I, I thank you that we can come again on Wednesday night to study your word and to study about your Holy Spirit. God, we're not worthy to be your temple, to um, be the place where your spirit takes up residence and um, makes his home in us. We're not worthy of that, especially um, in light of the fact that we're such sinful people that um, certainly uh, most of us, if not all of us, have felt that um, that fight even today uh, where we um, we love you and we want to please you yet um, our flesh is so strong and we love ourselves and we love the facade of uh, being in control and we love sin because it feels good and um, gives us a some temporary warm and fuzzy but God we know that um, this is the battle that we face in this life now, but that's, um, you've given us the Spirit of God to live within us to fight that battle and to, um, to win that battle because we have your power living within us. And so, as we consider your Holy Spirit and how he, uh, facilitates a relationship with you on our behalf, I pray that we would be able to respond Um, with obedient lives, uh, respond by surrendering um, that natural sinful instinct of um, protecting ourselves and taking control and and allowing ourselves to be fully influenced by the powerful Holy Spirit who lives within us. In your name we pray. Amen. So two weeks ago we discussed God the Son, Jesus Christ, and what role... And what role he plays in our relationship to God the Father. And it was not a typical lesson in the sense that you passed that back. Um, It wasn't a typical lesson in that um, you probably were expecting we're just going to talk about Jesus Christ and who he is and kind of do a doctrinal study about who Jesus is. But I tried to focus in light of the theme of the semester on developing intimacy with God, our relationship with God. How does Jesus facilitate that what role does he play in our relationship and so we talked about um, some problems that we inherently face um, with our relationship with the father and um, and then what we tried to do is see how Jesus um, disrupts that uh, problem and solves that problem so we looked at the problem of visibility how can you and I have a relationship with a God that we cannot see And we talked about how Jesus is the manifestation of God the Father. So he makes clear to us what God is like. So he gives us a very human uh, representation of what God is like. And then problem two, the problem of hostility. We have the sin problem. God is holy. And so how do we reconcile that and Jesus we can't but Jesus can so the he his solution to that problem of hostility is reconciliation and we saw both of those from uh, 
uh, from uh, Hebrews, or I'm sorry, Colossians. And then we transition to problem three and four in Hebrews, the problem of proximity. How can you and I communicate with a God who is so far from me? I mean, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So that God is spirit. He's up there somewhere. And he's not like right here. I mean, I I can go and talk to Caden tonight when I put him to bed. And he's we're nose to nose, you know. But God isn't nose to nose with me. I can't see him. You can't see him. So how do we have a relationship with a God that's so far away? And Jesus comes to bat and he serves as our high priest. So he intercedes. And then problem four, the problem of empathy. How can a God who is up in heaven, whose spirit, who's not flesh and bone like us, who is not subject to the sin-cursed world in which we live, how can he even understand what we're dealing with? But he can because he sent Jesus to be the God-man, 100% God, 100% man in one. And he is empathetic, as Hebrews chapter 2 says. And then the last problem was a problem of security. How can you and I feel confident in our relationship with a God that we cannot see, that we cannot touch, that we cannot get a hug from? that we cannot embrace? How can you and I have security? And we said, well, Jesus solves that because he proves that God is faithful over the entire course of history. Man sinned. Instead of vaporizing us like the sinners that we were, God decided to send Jesus. And he made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that a seed is going to come of Eve that is going to crush Satan. And Jesus is that seed. And all throughout the Old Testament, all up to the New Testament, God fulfilled his promises to send Jesus. Therefore, we can trust God because he has proved himself trustworthy. He has proved that we can feel safe in his arms because Jesus has come. He's made good on his promises. So this week we turn to God the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to attempt to be less, uh, it's going to be similar format. I'm not going to give you problems, but we're going to talk about how uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, what role he plays in our relationship with God the Father. And so my question to you is, is kind of open-ended, and based on what you say, we're going to discuss some things, and I'm going to try to ask you lots of questions um, rather than me just giving you a bunch of thoughts um, that are filling my head. So our goal is to discover what role the Holy Spirit plays in our relationship with God the Father. And so my question to you is, so how does the Holy Spirit do that? How does the Holy Spirit facilitate our relationship with God? What role does he play? And so whatever you give me, we're just going to start teasing out. And I've got a list of four or five things that I'd like to tease out with you. Convicts us. Okay. How does that uh, work um, to facilitate our relationship with God? Um, When we're convicted of our sin, we um, can then confess our sin, and that um, helps our relationship to be closer with the Father better. Okay. 
or fellowship, I should say, the fellowship of. Okay. Yeah, I like just um, something that's been helpful to me uh, to think about when we sin and we we seek to confess our sin. When we sin, our relationship nothing our relationship is secure and stable. Nothing can happen to our relationship with God, right? But our fellowship is the enjoyment. Maybe I'm thinking incorrectly, theologically speaking. I don't think I am, but I could be. Dr. Combs could correct me on this. But So our relationship is stable and secure, but our fellowship, and I would define our fellowship with God as the enjoyment of that relationship, Mm -hmm. our fellowship with God is is negatively impacted. Mm -hmm. Right? Because I can't do anything, for instance, even if I, I... I can't do anything to stop being Ken Fisher's son. No matter how hard I might try one day, and I'm not, I have no <coughs> desire to not be a son, but if I wanted to not be a son, I, I could do anything and everything I could, and there's nothing that would change that, right? That is a fact that can never be altered. But if I was just a wild child, and I made life... Hell on Earth or Hell in One Four Eight Zero Five College. My relationship with him would not be very enjoyable, right? But I still have that relationship, and I think if we think of it that way in our relationship with God, that might be a helpful way to think about it. Just as an aside, that wasn't so quick. So, how does the Holy Spirit? Facilitate our relationship with God. Conviction. He's our Bible says he's our guide. He guides us into all truth. Okay. He, so he's our Where's that, John? Teacher. <clears throat> John. The Holy Spirit will call me a guide in all truth. I don't know the reference. I think it's John 14 or John 16, one of those two. Okay. <clears throat> So how is uh, being guided into truth helpful to our relationship with God? We can obey Him better, or obey Him, period. We okay. know the word, the truth. Please, Him. It helps us to interpret Scripture. Okay, I know this is kind of an elementary question, but why is that even important in our relationship with that? To read scripture? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, I know that's really simple. Well, that's how we get to know him and his character and how we need to live our lives and the example of how we need to live. Okay. Okay. Keep going. John 14, 26 says he's an advocate. Um, And he also will teach you things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. What does that mean, Jim, when he says he's an advocate? He's on on our side. Okay. Represents us to the Father. Okay. 
But the, the interesting thing in that verse is how he says, and Jesus was saying that, and he will remind you of the words I have said. You know, so he's, he's almost like there to guide us, push us, remind us of what we are to know and what's important. Okay? And guide us to help us so we don't get distracted the same reason so you can okay. yeah is it Hebrews Hebrews 12 and it, I know it doesn't specifically say the spirit but uh, we lay aside sin and the junk that so easily entangles us and we fix our eyes on Jesus um, the author and perfecter of our faith and so obviously that would be, even though the Spirit isn't mentioned, that would be a work of the Spirit that keeps our eyes on Jesus. Intercedes for us in our prayers. Okay. But doesn't Jesus do that? We don't know what to pray for. He intercedes for us with, I can't quote it exactly, but intercedes with us with groans that are too deep for words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never understood that, by the way. I was looking at that tonight while I was eating dinner, and I was thinking, so how does that work? So Jesus is our intercessor. He's our faithful high priest. Yet the Spirit, Romans 8, is somehow our intercessor, making uh, almost like ensuring that our prayers accord with the will of God. Particularly when... Life stinks so bad that we don't even know what to say. Which is pretty cool. And I, I, I'm okay with not understanding how that works. Me <laughs> too. What other ways? Got guiding, convicting, interceding, uh, advocating, guiding, again, in a different, slightly different way, guiding in a focused way, um, into the word, understanding the word. I'm not sure what you would call it, but, um, there are several great places in Galatians and Ephesians about the fruits of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit and the attributes that Christians have because of that. Um, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have those things. You know, like love, joy, peace, uh, loving kindness and all those things. If you, if you don't have the Spirit, you can't have those things. So His work is to impart all those things to us that um, demonstrate that we're children of God. Because if you don't have the Spirit, or children, those who are children of God have the Spirit, and then those things should be evident in our life that we have the Spirit. I don't know how to, you know, what you call that, but other than the indwelling of the Spirit, but. Okay. 
and to add to that, it ultimately all that, and much of what we already said, it um, ultimately glorifies God. You know, that's um, so that that's how it plays a role in our relationship too. Mm-hmm. Hater family, you're the only table that hasn't contributed yet. <clears throat> Okay, it would just, just go with your dad's. Wouldn't be um, the Holy Spirit would help exalt who God or who Jesus is by showing us the gifts or just uh, helping with that relationship. I can't find the right words really, but helps kind of shine some light on where our focus needs to be. Yeah. This is we don't have time to go there, and we, so we won't. Um, but that's actually a, a really good uh, aspect of the Spirit's ministry um, because his whole focus—he's kind of like the behind-the-scenes guy, right? But he is always there, trying to shine the light of glory back on others, right? It, like when. If, if we were to look at the entire life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we could see the Holy Spirit working it, uh, behind the scenes to bring Christ's glory, to make him known, and to make him exalted. And, and uh, in a similar way, he would function in our lives to do the very same thing, not exalt us, but to exalt Christ in us and through us. So let me give you uh, five, if we get there. I think five. And they're somewhat uh, chronological, or at least the first couple are. Um, and we'll, I'll give them to you. We'll talk about it and give you, we'll think about a couple texts and then and move on. So the first one, so how does the Spirit of God facilitate our relationship with God? Number one, regeneration. So without regeneration, none of us can even have a relationship with God, right? Because as Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature objects of God's wrath. And then verse, uh, and then verse 3, I think it is, or maybe 4, 3 or 4, says, but God, who is rich in mercy, and then verse 5, what did that God who is rich in mercy do? He made us alive. So he, he imparted uh, life to the dead, which is a definition of regeneration. The impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. And that is a work of the Holy Spirit. So if I could uh, just go back to lesson uh, two for a quick moment, because we didn't necessarily talk about it then um, in depth, and we're not going to talk about it in depth right now, but there is, uh, when we talk about the Trinity or God's triunity, we talk about, I'm going to use some big fancy words, and then I'll try to explain it. We talk about the ontological Trinity, and the economic trinity. It's the same thing, but it's just different 
aspects or ways to look at the three persons. So on the ontological side, we look at their being. Ontology, that's the idea of being or their essence. So they're all God. They're, they're each individual persons, but they are all partakers of the divine nature. They are one God. But then you have the economic trinity, which is the functional side. So how do these three persons differ in function, even though they are one essence, they are one divine nature, they are one God, yet they all have different functions. And if I could, this is probably overly simplistic, but if you think about it this way, God the Father is the architect, so he's kind of like the planner up in heaven that you don't see, he was devising and, and predestinating and all that. Then you have Jesus Christ, the accomplisher. So he goes and he actually um, makes the provision, does the work that needs to be done. And then the Holy Spirit is the applier. So you have the architect, you have the accomplisher, the one who's doing the work, and then the Spirit applying that work to God's people. So... In light of that, the Spirit is the agent of regeneration. He is the one who is doing the work in our hearts. So we have God, who's the architect, orchestrating the whole thing, electing those who will be regenerated and win and all that, even predestinating how that's going to happen. Then he uses the Son to accomplish that work, to make that regenerative work even possible. And then he sends the Spirit of God into our hearts to do that work. So regeneration is a work of the Spirit whereby he gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead. A couple other texts that you could write down. John chapter 3, verses 3-5. The account of Nicodemus. There, uh, Jesus says that to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit. And, and there he's not saying born of, uh, I don't particularly believe he's saying you have to be born of water that is human birth and then spirit, spiritual birth. Um, nor do I think that he's saying you're baptized water and spirit. But what he's trying to do is conjure up... I mean, Nicodemus was supposed to understand what he's saying, right? Mm -hmm. So, whatever he's saying probably alludes to something that he should have understood from the Old Testament, probably from Ezekiel Ezekiel 36, where he talks about water being this cleansing agent, this purifying agent, and then the Spirit being the transforming agent. And so... um, John 3 would be a text that would speak, even though it doesn't use the term regeneration, being born again, being regenerated, getting new life. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7 would be another text. So why does regeneration matter? What's 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 so important about it with respect to our relationship with God? Other than the obvious, that... Like, you gotta have, you, I mean, you gotta go from dead to life to be able to have a relationship with God. That's, is that 
That's the obvious answer. Yeah, but I'm saying beyond the obvious. Like, what? Why is? What's so? What's such a big deal? What happens with regeneration? That that facilitates our ongoing relationship with God. Okay. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is indwelled. The new birth occurs. Okay. Child of God. Okay. Or new new creation. Yeah. He helps us see who we really are, so we can know where we have to go and where we were. Okay. So when you're sort of like a mirror. So when you're spiritually dead, um, what and and you have a old sinful nature, and as we've talked through almost two semesters, the old sinful nature prior to salvation, you are enslaved to it, correct? Mm-hmm. So the only ability you have is to act in a way that is consistent with that old nature, correct? So everything you do is is constricted by that old nature. You can do whatever you want, as long as, I mean, but it's only going to work. It's only going to be consistent with your sinful nature. Even the good things that you do. But when the Spirit of God enters your heart and regenerates your heart, it infuses spiritual life to the spiritually dead. How does Paul finish that first section of Ephesians 2? I think it's verse 10 or 11. And he says, we are his workmanship or his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, what does that, what does that help us see? We now have no longer just the ability to be slaves to sin. We now have the ability to do what? We have the ability to please God. Right? We could never please God prior to our regeneration because we never had an enlivened heart. But God made us alive so that we could be his masterpiece and work for his good pleasure. So we now have a new ability to please God that we once did not have before. We have the ability now within us to love God. Because we were haters of God, right? When we were spiritually dead, we were enemies of God, enemies of the cross. We were by nature objects of His wrath because we were enemies by our own choice. But when we were regenerated, we now have the capability in us to love. To love God. That facilitates our relationship, right? So regeneration. Number two, indwelling. So this is where kind of the chronological thing happens. So regeneration, while it is a one-time event, it's a one-time event that has eternal results, right? Because the Spirit of God doesn't come in Pete's life and go, poof, you're alive, and then departs. The Spirit of God comes and invigorates his heart and then remains in his heart forever, right? 
And we call that permanent residence in the life of the believer in dwelling. So indwelling is the permanent residence or the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So, um, I could be getting, I've never fully understood all the gradations of charismatic Pentecostal, and I don't know which one is believes which. But somewhere in that spectrum, there's some people that would suggest that you might be born again, but you don't have the Spirit. You don't have the Spirit until you speak in tongues at some later secondary event in your life. How would you combat that idea biblically? Because what I'm suggesting right now is that every believer has the Spirit of God from the moment of regeneration on through eternity. The teaching's wrong. That, that, what you said before. Yeah, but, but biblically speaking, how would we um, cripple that, that theology? Because you're right, it's wrong. But it's not just uh, some big theological construction that makes it wrong. There's a couple. Te- there's at least one text that's very definitively clear that would just pop the balloon of that theology. Is it um, that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit? Okay, that would that would be a text we could use. That's Ephesians chapter one. You actually mentioned it earlier, Dad. You probably didn't know, but you did. <laughs> Romans eight. I think it's verse 26 and 27, right before and God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Right before that, I'm, no, I'm sorry, that's, that, uh, oh, I'm not thinking correctly. I'm on to a different thing already. Uh, it's earlier in Romans 8, Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. He explicitly says that a believer has the Spirit. I mean, if I can find it quickly. Nine, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if it is not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Yeah, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> I don't know how much clearer you can get. So a, a believer has the Spirit. An unbeliever does not have the Spirit. Every believer has the Spirit, whether or not you want to deny it or not. You have the Spirit of God. Even our Pentecostal or charismatic brethren, who don't think they have the Spirit, they have the Spirit. They may not have evidenced it in in the way that they really want to, through the speaking in tongues, but they have the Spirit of God. There's, There's no conception, both theologically and explicitly in the text that would suggest that a New Testament believer does not have the indwelling spirit. A couple other texts, in addition to the Romans 8, John 14, John 14, verses 16 through 17, you can look up that. Um, Another text that I think is a pretty awesome idea 
is First uh, Corinthians six nineteen, where it talks about that we as believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What I think is so amazing about that is that the Old Testament gives us this promise that He will be with us, God with us, Emmanuel. He will take up residence with us. And and, and God, through Paul, says that we are now a temple. What was the temple in the Old Testament? The image of it that the temple in the Old Testament was where God took up residence, right? It's it's it was a localized presence. Why, as we talked about last semester, was it so good from Jesus' perspective that Jesus go away? Because no longer would he be localized in one human being, but now the Holy Spirit would come, he says in John 14 and John 16, and the Spirit of God indwells every believer. And now the Spirit is universal. He's everywhere. So the indwelling. That's a pretty spectacular thing. Why do you think it matters? What's so? Why is that an important um, aspect to our relationship with God? Or how does it facilitate our relationship with God? It's what's living in us. Is that how He sees Christ through us and not our sin? Um. I think that there's, there might be some truth to that. I think that there's probably, I would say that's more of our union and our union with Christ. Our union with Christ is we are identified in Christ. That's an, so there's an experiential aspect of our union with Christ. But um, I think this is more of a experiential rather than a judicial or a forensic or a, like a, how do I explain it? Like, Justification. It's not something that we experience. It's it's a standing that we have that God has declared us this. Where indwelling, I think, has pr- like practical ramifications for our life. I think there's a peace. There's a peace that is given right? that passes all understanding when we have the Holy Spirit okay. living in us. Well, this maybe the answer is too confusing to ask you because, frankly, it's the next thing. So, we're regenerated, right? I, I'm see, I'm a horrible discussion leader. So, I have all these thoughts in my head. I don't know how to get you there, so I just ask stupid questions, and I never get you to where I want you to go. So, I'm sorry for being frustrated. So, so we're regenerated. We have spiritual life with. It with infused within us is a new ability to please God. Regeneration, while it, it's a one-time event, has lasting results because now we have the Spirit of God who's taken up residence in our hearts. And that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in us results in amazing things, which are the rest of what we'll talk about. The next being sanctification. So, Dad, you were referring to Galatians chapter 5, not knowing what to talk or call that. And let's just call that sanctification in a really big, broad term. I believe... uh, 
was it you, Linda, that was talking about uh, conviction? Mm-hmm. Is the very first thing you said. So that would that would be in this area, right? In in the idea of sanctification, under this umbrella, we'd have conviction, we'd have fruit production, we'd have utilize bringing uh, the word of God to to bear in the in our lives, so that we conform to the image of His Son. All right, quick quiz question: Does anyone remember? How I defined sanctification last semester. Lesson five or six. So I'm really testing you now. (laughs) All right, so here we go. Here we go. Progressive sanctification. A blank. So when I say blank, I'm expecting you to fill this in. So this is an important word. So the blank work of the Holy Spirit and the believer. Continue. Ongoing. Ongoing. No, because we're it's I'm the term is progressive sanctification, so the assumption is it's ongoing. Say it again. So it's the blank work of the Holy Spirit and the believer. Initial. No. Visible. It starts with a C. It has two O's in it. Stop it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Look at you. Cooperative. Look at that. So the cooperative work of the Holy Spirit and the believer through the blank. So the cooperative work of the Holy Spirit and the believer through the blank. It's a four-letter word starting with the W. The what, Jim? Work. No. You're close, though. You're only one letter off. Word. Word. So the cooperative work of the Holy Spirit and the believer through the Word, whereby the believer becomes more and more like Christ. Yay! We got one with no questions. So if progressive sanctification is the cooperative work of the Holy Spirit and the believer through the Word, whereby we, you and I, become more and more like Jesus Christ. I got a question for you. Does the Pentecostal Church believe that you can reach 100% sanctification? Uh, there, I don't know. I, I, Pentecostal churches, do they believe that? I don't know. I don't know. I, I know that there are some people out there, I don't that I think it's, uh, is it Wesley? Wesley and Perfectionism or something like that. There are some views out there that would hold to some form of like you could in in theory be perfect but I don't know who it is I, I, I want to say for some reason Wesleyan perfectionism is sticking in my mind I'll have to google it so I don't think I don't know what if there's a strand of Pentecostalism that would um, would hold that so, so we have cooperation. So let's just kind of tease this idea out. So sanctification is a cooperative work. So what if it was all on us? It never happened. Right? No, I mean... For our pride, we can just be boastful about what we did. 
Yeah, I mean, there's way too many problems to even begin listing, right? Because we'd be full of ourselves because, like, hey, look at me. I mean, I'm better, I'm better than Pete. I mean, I'm way up here, right? And, I mean, Pete's, you know, he's down here. And, you know, Jim is, whew, you know, so... We've got obviously some significant, and Chris is even below Jim, so <laughs> I had to give her a hard time. Jim is cold. Yeah, Jim is always cold, according to my son. Yeah. So if it's on us, one, we're never going to get there, and and what attempts we do make, we're going to use that for our own satisfaction and status, right? And that's going to be a measure of pride. What if, uh, and I think that there's probably some people that would hold to this, what if it was just all a work of the Holy Spirit? Do you see any pro- potential problems with that? Then we wouldn't do anything. Okay. Well, that would result practically in our passivity, right? We would sit there and essentially kind of twiddle our thumbs and, and, and wait for... Right? Do you see any potential uh, problems like down the road if you were to, to hold that view? Well, okay, let me, let me ask. <laughs> hey, let me let me tell you where I'm going, or, and let me <laughs> let me lead you a little bit better. So, so, so let's say John and I. Let's say John is super sane, right? And I'm really struggling, and I am, you know, I've got this temper that is out of control, and I cuss all the time, and I, I, you know, I kick my dog, defying proverbs, right? Because I'm the ungodly mistreat their animals. My wife just found that verse the other day. <laughs> I take good. I'm the one that takes care of Grady, so. Grady's our five-pound Yorkie, and I'm about the only one that likes him anymore. So, anyway, so John's here, I'm here. Whose fault is that? But, 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 but if it's all the Holy Spirit, right? So that means, well, I mean, John's a super saint. Like, way to go, Holy Spirit. And then I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, what the heck's wrong with you, Holy Spirit? <laughs> that I'm stuck here. Like at this level. I think there's a real pro- potential problem with that. Because I could then, and I, I'm just being honest. I don't know how all this works with God's sovereignty. Because I believe God's sovereign over everything. He ordains everything. Yet I don't believe that we're robots. I believe that we're responsible. So here's that big umbrella. And those things fit in it. And I don't know how they work together. But they do. <laughs> and God's got that figured out. But I, I, I want to guard against the idea that, well, it's all the work of the Spirit. It's all the work of the Spirit. And then I sit there and, and I, well, okay, so I'm faced with this problem. And I want to sin. So is it the Spirit's problem? Is it the Spirit's fault? No. I mean, right? I mean, none of us would have the audacity to say that, right? But I think that if if we hold a 100% or 100% view, we've got to see it as a cooperative work, I think. Because I think it leads to problems. Dad, you're going to say something? Yeah, there's uh, two verses in uh, in Galatians 5. 
17 says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. <coughs> and down my notes on verse uh, 22 about the fruits of the spirit says that fruit is a singular indicating the crop of nine qualities produced by the Spirit in those who walk in dependence on Him. We don't we don't walk by ourselves. We have to recognize the Spirit in our life. And when we see that we're maybe heading down the wrong path with thoughts or actions or things, we have to ask the Lord to help us and help have the Spirit help us walk down that love, joy, peace, long-suffering yeah. path instead of those fruits of, you know, drunkenness and all that other stuff. So. Yeah, absolutely. Because in that text, I think there's this, there's the sovereignty and responsibility, like, tucked in there both because you have the Spirit who is producing Christ-likeness in us, right? Yet, I want to say three or four different times in the span of the second half of chapter five of Galatians, and then the first half of the first maybe four or five verses of chapter six, he says, "Walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, walk by the Spirit." Three or four times. Well, what in the world is that? If we're just these passive robots that are waiting to be zapped into obedience, well, then. Why do we have to walk by the Spirit? Why do we have to keep in step with the Spirit? Why must we, why do we have to do anything to accord our lives with the Spirit? So sanctification. Does this make sense? Like, or am I just, I, I feel like I'm kind of just no, everywhere, all willy-nilly tonight. It makes sense. Is it? Yeah. Okay. So you don't get it? It's no, okay. I mean, I'm not the only one. I don't think. I think it's a little wordy. That's just my opinion. Okay. Cool. I just. I don't know if I'm making sense or not. So. All right. Next one. I believe you mentioned this, Pete. Prayer. Right. Prayer is what talking to God. We talk to God through the Son by the Spirit. In Romans eight says that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. So He somehow, when you and I are in the thick of life and we cannot make sense of anything, we don't know what's up from down, left to right. He's our intercessor. He's our advocate. He, when we're sitting there in bed yelling in our pillow <laughs> or or just don't even know what to say moaning in, in the pain of life he has the capability of interpreting and then interceding according to the will of God for you and I I don't know how else to explain it I don't think anyone can explain how that works but it works and the spirit of God does that. So then the last one is assurance. We could also say security, but they are different. So Karen, you mentioned the idea of uh, security, or uh, yeah, security. Um, when you mentioned sealing in, in Ephesians 1, he is the deposit or the seal guaranteeing 
um, our future inheritance. So it's um, it's like a security deposit or something, kind of. A reservation. What? A reservation. But it's it's more than a reservation. Yeah, because you could lose a reservation. Because I could give up a reservation. This is like signed, sealed, and delivered. You got it. This cannot be taken away from you, reserved in heaven for you, as First Peter says, First Peter one. So, but then, not only do we have security being sealed by the Holy Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance, but we also have assurance. What do you think, how, how would you define assurance? Maybe if, if you're, if a teenager in our, our church came up to you and said, you know, I'm really struggling with the assurance of my salvation. What, what are they asking? What are they saying to you? Okay. Is there anything that I can do to lose it? What were you saying, John? They really don't know whether they're a believer or not. They don't, they don't have the assurance. I'm not saying they aren't. I'm saying they are struggling whether to know or not. They might don't. Maybe looking for proof. Okay. I mean, they don't have, they are lacking. When you lack assurance, you're lacking confidence that you're God's child, right? Most likely your relationship with Jesus is not very strong at the moment. So that is wavering. Assurance is knowing that when something's been promised to you, that it really is going to happen. And the Holy Spirit lets us know that what God promised and said that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life, that we will have that eternal life. It's not, well, maybe, I don't know. No. The Holy Spirit tells us, yes, you definitely will have that. No questions asked. Is it done deal? Is that like a faith thing? Well, um, so there would... uh, so typically in the discussion of assurance, there's uh, there are typically two uh, what we call objective means, which are like concrete. One is with one of those is faith. I believe what I'm supposed to believe, and then the other is your obedience. And then the subjective, which they use the term subjective because it's kind of, it's a little bit fuzzy. We can't fully understand or comprehend it. And that is what we're talking about here, or what I'm trying to get to, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Romans 8, uh, verses 15 and 16, and then also in Galatians chapter 4, I believe, the beginning of chapter 4, where the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And then he cries in us, Father, Father. So there's the subjective work of the spirit in our lives that we are God's children. Yet at the same time, there is, we believe the gospel and because of our belief, our belief results in transformed life. Those are the objective 
and the, the spirit is the subjective, is typically the way theologians would discuss it. But the spirit assures us in kind of ways that we don't fully grasp or understand how. So the spirit is, and these are just five. We could talk about probably a lot more, but these are just five uh, pretty essential ways in which the spirit, uh, the five roles the spirit plays in facilitating our relationship with God. He regenerates our heart. He gives us life with the the accompanying ability to love God and obey him. The spirit of God indwells us. So from that moment of regeneration on, he resides in us. We have the spirit of God living within us. Then he begins that process of sanctifying us, of changing us from one image of glory to the next, as uh, Paul says in, I think, 1 Corinthians, where he's transforming us progressively, moment by moment. You know, and one of the things that I think is interesting, if we believe that we have, the Spirit indwells us, that means we always have the power to obey. Right? We always, so when we disobey, and we will inevitably disobey, right? Because we have the sinful nature that is always at war. But when we disobey, it's not because we're lacking the Spirit. We always have enough of what we need to obey in any circumstance that we're in. When we fail to obey, it's not the Spirit's fault. It's our fault. We have conceded to the flesh and not kept in step with the Spirit. But the Spirit's at work making us more more and more like Jesus Christ. The Spirit is at work in interceding for us, particularly when we don't even know what to pray. And he assures us. Somehow, some way, he's, uh, he works in our hearts to confirm in us that we are God's children, crying out in our hearts to God's Father, Father. Those are pretty essential things to our relationship, I think. And, and my hope is that we will be able to glory in this amazingly knowable yet incomprehensible triune God who um, has given, who is Father, who is Son, and who is Spirit. And He has come to dwell in us. That's pretty. That's a pretty amazing thought. Let's pray. Father, thank you for coming to take up residence, to make your home in us, to make us your temple. I know that um, at times this lesson uh, was you know, deep and um, sometimes it was shallow and uh, sometimes it was just a hodgepodge of who knows what, but I pray that it would have been something that would have been beneficial to my heart and the hearts of those in the class so that we could glory in the gospel, so that we could glory in who you are and what you have done for us, that we would see you as good and as lovely, as trustworthy, and that we uh, would obey you because we have you living in us in the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.